Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Hints and Guesses. This week I want to talk about Jonah. I want to talk about the sign of Jonah, this weird, cryptic line from Jesus where he says, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. And I want to talk about the story of Jonah as a kind of sign, or I might even change that to symbol. It's a kind of symbol, maybe even an archetypal symbol of transformation or an archetypal symbol of death and rebirth or the life-death-life cycle, something like that. To me, this story contains a kind of potent, contains potent ingredients of real change real death, real resurrection. And that seems to be what the story kind of calls forth. So anyway, that's what that's where I'm going today. I want to talk about that. But I want to run it through um, the some levels or stages or memes of consciousness. That's the thing I want to try to get at. What does this tell us about memes or levels of consciousness? That's, that's what I find contemporary um, or alluring in terms of an, a contemporary question. And if you, I don't know, if you've been listening to me for a while, you know I sometimes talk about different levels or stages of consciousness, but I don't really say a whole lot about it. And I want to say a little bit more today and use the story as a way of sort of revealing some of these levels or stages or states or countries. I still can't think of the best metaphor. I don't really like levels because, I don't know, in the in Western culture we tend to think higher is better or something like that. So higher levels of consciousness sort of implies lower level ones suck. But every level of consciousness exists up and down the spiral, so to speak, of our own conscious and unconscious selves and every level of consciousness matters and no one gets to bypass one or two or four and no one gets to claim hey I'm in a higher level of consciousness as if lower levels of consciousness aren't also operative really the simple question is how do I grow because our world is being run by low-level consciousness what I would call egocentric egocentric consciousness, though there are other names for it. And it's making the world more dangerous, hostile. It's contributing to the, the fact that we are running out of resources, that we're reaping the consequences of the poison that we've pulled out of the earth for our own economic gain and our own gadgets and devices. And if we're going to grow up how <laughs> and it seems like the future of humanity the future of the planet the future of the species on the planet the future of our oceans and our waterways and uh, seems to be in relationship to the question of human development it's not dependent on it but in relation in partnership in cooperation and clearly we can have an enormous effect for good or ill Now, in my book, Bitten by a Camel, which I 
hope you buy. My goal was to sell enough so that I could get another book deal and write another one. So if you like what I had to say, buy more of them, I guess, or buy them for friends. But I tried to address a little bit this sign of Jonah. So I have one little section in there on it. But I don't go into a whole lot of depth, probably because I couldn't really. In fact, when I look back at that book, I think there are a couple of sections or chapters that really deserve a whole book, but I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready yet to write that book, which is, I don't know, that's what writing is like. It's like you you sort of abandon the project. You go as far as you can go, and then you have to put the pen down and move on, and, and maybe something of those uh, ideas come back and grow and develop. So I did say, I've said a little bit about this in the past, but not as directly as I'm going to try to look at it today. And by the way, um, speaking of buying my book, I'm redoing my website, kentdobson.com, in the next probably month or so. Make sure you sign up on there. I have a little connect button because I'm going to start doing a newsletter and that way I can let people know what kinds of things I'm up to and I've got some retreats and programs and different things cooking. And that's probably the simplest way to stay connected. And I don't know, I'll do a newsletter every once in a while. I won't um, bombard your inbox. Um, but anyway, if you're interested in what's coming, that's the best way to sort of stay in touch. Now, let's review kind of four levels of consciousness, maybe four or five, that I think are most pressing. And I'll mention them first, and I've talked about them before, so some of this might be review for a few of you who have been listening to my teachings and whatnot, but here they are. Egocentric consciousness is followed by ethnocentric consciousness. So the ego is I, me-centered consciousness. Ethnocentric consciousness is my group, my ethnicity, my tribe what might be a good way of saying it, which tends to grow or occasionally grows or maybe rarely grows into world-centric consciousness. So somehow not just my tribe, but the tribes around me, uh, the other places on earth, the world. Someone might claim to be a global citizen rather than just a citizen of a particular country. That's more world-centric consciousness. It tends to ask questions like, what's good for the whole, not just what's good for my tribe, and not just what's good for me. And I think beyond that, you have something maybe that I would call eco-centric consciousness or soul-centric consciousness. That's kind of, I stole that one from Bill Plotkin, or sometimes he'll even say eco-soul-centric consciousness, which tends to have the more-than-human world also in its conscious awareness. So not just what's good for me, my tribe, the other tribes or citizens of the world, but also the earth itself, the plants and animals and oceans and uh, uh, clouds and air and 
so forth and so on, that's ecocentric consciousness. And if something like ecocentric consciousness doesn't begin to grow in the world, then you already know where this thing is, where egocentric consciousness will take it. The me, 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 and sometimes my, my, my group can destroy the very life systems of the planet. So it's self-destructive. So the need to even consider these levels or memes or stages of consciousness is because we desperately need to grow up. And many of the institutions, religious institutions, economic institutions, educational institutions, are not really interested in growing much beyond ethnocentric consciousness. Maybe a little bit of liberal, kind of green, progressive thought thinks it's world-centric or tries to be world-centric and sometimes is, and occasionally even ecocentric. You see it on the edges or fringes, but by and large, mainstream culture, even if it pays lip service to, hey, I recycle or, or something. And we all know actually what happens to with recycling. It's like we just ship it to China and much of it ends up in their land, landfills and little kids end up smashing electronics, our iPhone 4s to bits looking for minerals that poison their skin and lungs but we don't want to look at that we say no 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 i i bet i recycle so we pay lip service to some of these um more global levels of consciousness but in reality the way we live tends to not look like that and i'm putting myself in that camp i am a hypocrite uh, in my own supposed world-centric or ecocentric leanings, not that I am have arrived, but I pay lip service, but I tend to not live uh, in a very integrated and holistic way. And those four levels of consciousness, ego, ethno, world-centric, and ecocentric, I think actually are hidden in the story of Jonah. And I think some turning over this story perhaps can provide some on-ramps to challenge our own stuckness wherever we are, up and down this spiral. When we're stuck in egocentric or ethnocentric or even world-centric, uh, I think a myth like this tries to poke and prod and lure us to the very edge of who we think we are push us over the threshold into the unknown or act as a sort of border crossing guard that at just the right moment sort of opens the border and we sort of slip past into a deeper, more integrated, more life-giving and, and ultimately needed um, deepening of our human story and our, of our consciousness. So let's uh, start at the beginning of the story. If you know the story of Jonah, uh, God, Yahweh, really comes to Jonah and says, go to Nineveh and preach to them. Tell them to repent. And uh, the, Nineveh, the people of Nineveh were Assyrians who were the enemies of the Jews. So in some sense, 
Jonah, who ends up saying no, no, I'm not going to do that, is saying, no, I'm not going to go to my enemies. I don't want them to repent. And I mean, my whole life I heard that story and I thought, well, that was wrong. Jonah should just obey God because that's what we were all told as kids, obey God. But actually, no, quite the opposite. It's kind of a noble thing. No, I, these the Assyrians actually destroyed 10 tribes in Israel, all of the northern kingdom, killed most of them, and the rest went into exile, and they never recovered, and we never hear from them again in history. They're assimilated or absorbed into other people groups. So these are really enemies, and Jonah doesn't want to do it, but his level of consciousness is very egocentric. No, I'm not going to do that, and he gets into a boat, and it says, paying the fare, he went away. So he's using his own power, his own wealth, his own possessions, his own money. He gets in a ship and goes in the opposite direction. And still very much in egocentric consciousness. Maybe a little bit of ethnocentric. Maybe he's thinking about his fellow Jews and or his Hebrews is really what it says in, in the book of Jonah. And, but certainly is not thinking in a world-centric sense. So he's sort of locked into the I level, which is where most of us, if we're very honest, tend to live. My taxes, my property, my rights, my 401k. Unless you happen to be in an oppressed or marginalized category in the United States, and there are many of them, you are probably, most of the time, influenced by your own egocentric tendencies. That's mainstream pop culture. That's everything that's on the television. Every advertisement, every sports team. And now you can't even watch sports without it being one giant advertisement. I don't know if you've ever seen the Truman Show where they have these they have product placement and I don't know when the, exactly that movie came out. It's, it's a while now. It's quite old. Maybe 2001. I made that up. I have no idea. But the product placement in there is sort of over the top. But now we live in that world. We've chosen to inhabit that world. And everything in our entertainment industry is actually trying to sell you something, trying to sell me something. And really, what are they trying to sell behind that? They're trying to sell a a bolstering or an enhancement of my own egocentric tendencies, my power, my possessions, my position, my wealth, so I can pay my fare and go about my way. And um, it's the thing that makes our culture go round. It's actually the scariest thing about the so-called American dream, where maybe the, it's some of its origins, which tend to be very life-giving, uh, freedom, although freedom for just some people we now know. But there's, always, there's, it's like, there's good and bad in there, I suppose. But that, the American dream now, for, for many of us, has turned into more possessions, the latest gadgets, the better neighborhoods, and that's about as far as we can see. That's arriving to us, so totally dominated by egocentric consciousness. And that's how the story opens. But as, the, as 
good myths do, it never leaves it at that. As soon as he gets into the boat, a storm comes up. And a storm, I mean, represents darkness, chaos, mystery, the unconscious. It's night and nature itself. As if, it's almost as if nature will not cooperate with our egocentric ways. It wants to, and often does, come and humiliate us. Think about these unbelievable storms that we've experienced in the United States. And if you live other places, by the way, that's an amazing thing about this podcast. I see the analytics and people all over the world listen, which is just incredible to me. But the storms that we've experienced in the United States, on one level, nature is saying, no, uh, you think you can live where you want and put your house where you want even if it's in a floodplain, even if it's on the beach where every year there are hurricanes, it doesn't care. And this sort of churning, powerful mystery rises up in the story and, and the boat and all the people on the boat find themselves in the midst of this chaos, shaking people up. And right away, amazingly, ethnocentric consciousness takes center stage. Because it says each cried to his own God. In other words, every person on the boat cries to their own God, which gods in the ancient world were ethnocentric. They were tribal. So they're turning to their tribe and the, the, the um, divinity or um, the gods associated with their tribe and saying, help me. And, and you see the kind of splintering off each to his own group. Almost like which God will bail us out, but also what gives me identity, meaning, and purpose, my group, and where am I safe? And so they're crying out to their God, and, and finally they, they see Jonah, who's asleep, and they say to him, from what people are you? They're looking at him and saying, what group are you in? That's an ethnocentric question. And they're already starting the thinking process of, wait a minute, if there's someone on this boat whose God is mad at them, if we get them off the boat, we'll be safe. And Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the God of heaven, of the sea and the land. And they're terrified because he mentions the sea and here they are at sea and they're about to die. And he says, essentially, throw me overboard. And they do. They don't feel that great about it, but they do. They throw him overboard, which is what happens when ethnocentric consciousness remains there and operates primarily out of self-protection and fear. We scapegoat other people. We throw them off the boat, which is what we call American politics. Who can we scapegoat on right or the left and say, if we could just, I mean, that's the way many people feel about Trump right now, that, hey, um, you know, if we could just tie him up and throw him overboard, we would solve our problem. But that's never, not in, in, in terms of long-term solution, never really gets at what's beneath that. And we live in a world that is dominated by the scapegoating mentality. Who can we scapegoat? Who can we blame? And you and I are guilty of that. Well, I won't blame you. I'll just take responsibility. I am guilty of that. I look for almost immediately, who can I blame? 
And if I can get them out of here or condemn them or put something on Facebook or tweet about them, that's the psycho-spiritual equivalent of throwing them overboard so that I'm safe, so that my group is safe or safe enough. And there's, I suppose, it's in our psychological DNA, if there is such a thing, we cannot help ethnocentric consciousness. It's what emerges after egocentric consciousness. And you see it out on the playground, kids dividing up between groups, between who's cool and who's not cool. And I think one of the thing that's, things that's worth just mentioning is that that's just part of adolescence. It's just to be grown out of which we don't see very much of in our American mainstream culture. We actually encourage now the dividing up of the entire world. Everything is dualistic and forces us into choose which side you're on. Are you a progressive or are you a conservative? Are you a Democrat or are you a Republican? Are you for the president? Are you against the president? And, and, and right now, Trump, um, it seems to be from what we can tell by the media, which is hard to read. Uh, he's right that, I wouldn't say he's right about fake news, but he's right that media culture, um, everybody has an agenda, and he's sort of highlighting that, but it seems to be the case, from what we can tell through the media, that this is the way he runs his White House. Who's on my side and who's not? And who needs to be scapegoated? And as soon as they make me look bad, that's more egocentric, I'm going to send them away. This is not helping anyone. And it's right, I think, built in to the story. Now it's at this point that the mystery deepens. So they throw Jonah overboard and he gets swallowed by a fish. By the way, Jung says that the fish, he's not thinking of the Jonah story, but fish in the dream world and in mythology often represents the unconscious, these mysterious, silent creatures that are beneath the surface. And he's thrown into the unknown, into the unconscious, into the depths of the sea, and he's swallowed up by a fish, and he's in the belly of this fish, and he's crying out. He's praying. His whole worldview is collapsing. That's the way I would put it. And who he thinks he is is dying. The, this is a symbol of psycho-spiritual death, which, as far as I can tell, and I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm not an expert, but as far as I can tell from works like uh, Joseph Campbell um, and many other scholars and thinkers, that the, the big story, the big myths, often contain this kind of death scene. That's actually what's meant by the hero's journey. We, we've distorted it into a Hollywood journey where like you go through hard times, but you win the girl in the end or you defeat the bad guy. It's not a death. It's not a collapse of one's worldview. It's not going into the unknown, into the lost wilderness of the unconscious, of the forest, of hell, of Hades. But that's what's happening to Jonah. He's swallowed up by darkness and he cannot see and death is at hand and he's down there for three days and three nights and now we're starting to hint around at the jesus story the jesus image the sign of jonah 
down into the depths. And here, his whole world is pulled apart. And just at the moment you think he is going to die, or on one level does die, the story says that the fish vomits him onto dry land, throws him up. And here he's faced, I think, with the future and the unknown. I think he's brought to the border crossing of ethnocentric consciousness. So from egocentric to ethnocentric to maybe more world-centric. And it says he begins to head toward Nineveh, which is an expanding of who is important. Is he really going to go and speak to his enemies? Is he going to stand before them and say, repent, which is in Hebrew, it just means turn around. Don't go the way that you've been going. It's not good for you or anyone else. And he's faced with this. Is he going to walk in that direction? And he begins to make steps, I think, toward a more world-centric view of the world. And he begins to tell them, repent, um, turn around, change your mind. And amazingly, in the story they do, they're like, oh, okay, you're right. We're, we're going to turn to your God. Or it's, it's not exactly that clear, but they, they do repent. They say, we're not going to go. We're not going to continue to do it, what we're doing. And Jonah, almost revealing that he hasn't moved all that much in terms of his worldview, is angry. And he says, this is what I was worried about. I knew God, that you were a God of mercy, and that if I told these people to repent, and they repented, that you would let them off the hook. And he is furious about this. He's so angry that he would rather die. In other words, this is the way I would put it at least, he's still so uh, invested in his egocentric and ethnocentric view of the world that he would rather die than give that up. By the way, I think that is a sure sign that you are being pushed to the edge. And I think I'm making a huge generalization in American culture right now, so forgive me, but maybe there's some truth in this generalization. I think some of the fear and pressure and clinging to the no my way or my group or my America or my version of America, that kind of like anger that comes with that is a sure sign that it's cracking that you're being pushed right to the edge of the border. And maybe the border guard one day is going to open up that gate and you're going to accidentally trip and fall over, find yourself on the other side. And that's the place that we find Jonah. He's there, he's above the city, and he's watching it. And it's not going the way that he wants it. In fact, it's confirming that from a spiritual or divine point of view, let's just say a divine point of view, a transcendent point of view, the transcendence or the transcendent one or unitive consciousness or God, whatever you want to say, is more world-centric than Jonah is. And there isn't such a distinction between the Hebrews and everybody else. Apparently, this God, Yahweh, is surprisingly interested in the enemies of, quote, his people. The book of Jonah should mess up your theology if you are a theologian or a you know, claim to be a Christian or something like that. It messes it up. So then he's on a hillside and nature gets back involved, like in so many of the great myths and stories. And a vine grows up and begins to shade him. It's very hot and it gives him shade. And he's sort of delighted in the shade of this 
this plant, a kikayon, I think, or something like that. It's called in Hebrew. I'd have to look it up. And this, it's like a vine. Grows up, provides shade. The next day, of course, a worm comes up and eats the plant. Now, what I think is happening is uh, some seeds of a more ecocentric consciousness is beginning to emerge. In other words, Jonah is experiencing his utter dependence on the natural world. His utter reliance on something he cannot control. It's hot, and a vine grows up, and he sits in the shade. Next day, worm comes, eats the vine, and he's furious and angry. Neither of which, the worm nor the plant, Jonah had any say in. And, and, and when you're stuck in egocentric consciousness and ethnocentric consciousness and perhaps even world-centric consciousness, you don't really realize or you're not very conscious of the utter integration of everything in what we call reality. That we are absolutely, utterly dependent on oxygen, which we cannot see, and H2O, which we cannot make, and plants and animals and so forth and so on. Just start going down the list, sunshine and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it, it. when I say it, it's like, oh yeah, of course we're dependent, but we do not live that way. And actually, egocentric consciousness tries to deny it, tries to push it down. The moment it starts raising its ugly head, our utter dependence, then we panic and start, you know, getting bottled water and putting it in the basement and having, a, you know, uh, an arsenal of weapons so we can outlast whatever coming apocalypse there is, this kind of fear-oriented uh, reactivity that you see, that's very egocentric and maybe a little ethnocentric, my tribe meaning my family. But really, you're going to survive the apocalypse because you have bottled water, you know, because you have a stash of bullets. This plant image and the worm image means that really, really, on a deeper level, level, we are utterly dependent and integrated into the natural systems of the earth itself. And you have ecocentric consciousness beginning to emerge. Now, one more hint about ecocentric sort of awareness here. The book of Jonah ends in an incredible way, almost a rabbinic way. This is pre-rabbis, but... Um, Maybe, maybe here you have the beginning of sort of a rabbinic consciousness, which is question-oriented. The book of Jonah ends with a question. Yahweh says something like, Should I not be concerned about 120,000 people? That's the question. Should I not be concerned about 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left? Now, by the way, just a quick comment on that. I think the divine figure here, Yahweh, represents, you know, the, the most integrated <laughs> consciousness possible, the divine consciousness, which does not divide up the world. And actually what's intriguing about the image here is that this God actually has compassion on people that cannot tell their right hand from their left. Now, when I think about that, just in our contemporary context, when I think about 
people's politics that I don't agree with, religions that creep me out, worldviews that I think are oppressive. I cannot say what rises up within me is a wellspring of compassion because they don't know their right hand from their left. But I think here's a hint of the, of, of the divine consciousness, which I think is larger than any of this. Egocentric, ethnocentric, world-centric, ecocentric, and then there's this divine consciousness. And I think something of it is being revealed here, that whatever we mean by the divine, the spirit, the unitive, the whole, the cosmic, um, doesn't divide the world up like that. And actually, from the heart of this um, being, or from the heart of this spirit, flows compassion. Just now, I mean, that's striking me like as a kind of, um, I don't know, it's kind of humbling. It's humiliating in a way. I mean, as I, as I think about it, the world would be much safer, more gracious and generative if that's the way we treated our enemies. Instead of scapegoating them and throwing them overboard, we just had compassion. They don't know their right hand from their left. They're, they're stuck in egocentric and ethnocentric ways of being, as I am too from time to time. And then there's one more question. So Yahweh says, should I not be concerned about 120,000 people? And also many animals. And that's the final line of the book. And also many animals. So the moment you think, oh, this is just about sort of anthropocentric, I think that's the right word for it, human-centeredness, and that's a big mistake that humanity has made, especially religious humanity, especially Christianity, that the point is human-centric. Just at the end of this book, the divine throws in, and also many animals. That somehow the divine is concerned about animals and not just people? This is ecocentric consciousness as an invitation. That's the invitation of Jonah. We have no idea where Jonah goes with this. He's out there in the blinding sunlight. The worm has, been, has eaten the uh, shady plant and God is now looking him in the face, so to speak, saying, how do you want to live? Do you want to go back to your egocentric and ethnocentric ways of being in the world? That's what you want? Or even world-centric where, okay, now I'm, I, I can include even the people of Assyria in my field of care. But now the animals, everything, the plants, the ocean, the storms, the worms, that's, I think, where the story leaves us hanging, which is exactly what a good myth should do. It pushes against our own borders, wherever we are, or wherever we tend to be stuck. Maybe we've tasted moments of ecocentric consciousness, but, you know, the first time someone pisses me off at work, boom, I'm flying off the handle and I'm concerned about me, me, me. So I don't think anybody gets out of this... Um, mythological um, map that this story seems to be uh, giving us. And I think that 
leads me finally back to this question of Jesus, where some people come to him and say, give us a sign. And I hear in that, do a magic trick. Do some wonder-working, faith-healing, knock over a few people. Give us a sign that we can wreck. Oh, that person was blind, now they see. Prove who you are. And he says, there's no sign except the sign of Jonah, which not only does Jesus go and embody through his own death and rebirth, through, but also through the messianic death. I mean, if you're very honest about Jesus, he doesn't fulfill the messianic expectations. He's killed which in a way I think is the death of that way of thinking, that some kind of ethnocentric savior is going to come and save us and not other people. That's the thing that has to die. And Jesus sort of willingly sacrifices himself. That's the Christian, that's Christian theology coming in, but willingly allows himself to be killed by the system just to sh show how unworkable it is. That's what I find so profound. But as a sign, he says, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah, is not just about him. He's saying, if you want to pass through this thing, if you want to come into the kingdom, that's sort of Jesus's major metaphor. If you want to have eyes and really see and ears and really hear, if you want to move toward love, which I think that's um, what the Christ or Christ consciousness offers the world. Maybe Buddha is non-attachment or um, enlightenment. Uh, maybe Christ at the very center is, is embodying love and love of enemies at that. I mean, you wonder why he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing on his own crucifixion, where did he hear that? Oh, that's already in the book of Jonah. That's, that's compassion toward enemies. If you want to even move in this direction, you're going to have to die. You're going to have to pass through. Something of your own worldview is going to have to die. Your own egocentric, ethnocentric uh, way of seeing things, you're going to have to be thrown overboard because that is not going to die easily. Which I think, and maybe just to end, I don't know what's going on in our culture, but I do know something of our egocentric and ethnocentric dominating consciousness is not working. It's not only working in terms of the planet, it's not working personally. So many people who have lived like, I did it my way, I made it to the top, are sick, fat, unhealthy, depressed, lonely, and addicted. So it's not working. And I think maybe this image of Jonah is a way of saying, yeah, and it's not meant to work. And what would it look like to turn toward this, toward the um, illusion that 
meaning, purpose, fulfillment, joy, and love is going to come from me, 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 or us, us, us. And once you start turning toward that, you're getting to the edge of the boat and you just might get thrown overboard. Maybe not by no act of your own, but by your own friends, neighbors, relatives, uh, politicians, pop singers. And now there's hardly any difference between um, pop figures, cultural icons, and our political system. Maybe their own insanity is going to is, <laughs> be the very thing that will push you over the edge and you'll find yourself under the water. And you'll know, maybe you won't know it right away, but I think we could say uh, from, from an archetypal point of view, you're entering the deeper waters. And there, the process and possibility of deep change begins to stir in the belly of the well. And perhaps you'll find yourself vomited out on a shore with a completely new way of looking at the world. And it might be a little more world-centric and hopefully a little more ecocentric, and maybe even a little more of the divine consciousness entering in through the mystery of this, of transformation, the mystery of this life-death-life cycle. That, my friends, is about the best I can do right now when it comes to what might this sign of Jonah be all about.